as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> My friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. Whisper pirate ship.
We got it in Wii to change reality. To change reality. That was uh, Sacred Red. That was um, Sea Star from the Big Island. Oh, so beautiful. She said that she got it in me to change reality, and I'll just say we got it within we to change reality. And that's what we're about here. That's right. Happy Friday. This is the Common Thread Collective here at MutinyRadio.fm. And I want to say Shabbat Shalom to everybody. Peace. I want to say Happy Fr- uh, Freya's Day. And uh, 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 people don't know, I'm about to uh, I'm about to take off uh, uh, Val... I'm about to go off on my on my on my North American tour. Yep. But you'll be holding it down. I will. I will, and you'll be our far out, far flung correspondent, every, calling in on Fridays. Every Friday, I'll call in with the phone in my hand. Yep. I'm talking about Missoula, Minneapolis, points in between, New York City, and then before we get off off uh, off, we'll have to look the, off, off the, the grid, off the grid, and the Rainbow Gathering and the Green Mountains of Vermont, all of that. Uh, and then afterwards. We're, we're uh, afterwards I'm going down to uh, Philadelphia with Felipe, hopefully getting a caravan together and, uh, and, uh, and feeding the people. And I'm calling it, this is the first time you're here on this station, I'm calling it Occupy Philly, Occupy Liberty during the Democratic Convention. And inviting the Bernie delegates, be sure to come on, don't give up. Come on through. I hope Bernie will issue a huge manifesto saying all your delegates, there's hundreds of de- Bernie delegates who have never done this before, were elected uh, outside of the political structure. He's not a Democrat, remember, he's a Democratic Socialist. And I hope they come to town and we'd be occupying, and that's a dream I have. Well, may the dreams come true. Well, that's today, too. It's a question of saying a p- planet on the planet to a degree. Well, anyway, we got Ubi. We do have Ubi. We're going to play because uh, even when things get a little just out of hand, Ubi lets us know, don't worry so much. Everything's going to be, gonna be all right. All right.
Thank you, Ubi, for letting us know everything is going to be all right. Thanks for listening to the Common Thread Collective here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val. I'm here with Diamond Dave, and I'm here with James Zealous, who's our, our guest interviewer today, um, because we have a, a rather esteemed guest, an author and poet and scholar, uh, Mr. Peter Dale Scott. So, uh, James Zealous, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Global Val. Um, I say I'm very excited uh, to be here at the Common Third Collective and to have uh, our guest, who will be in in a moment, Mr. Peter Del Scott. Peter, I'm, I'm definitely here. I'm definitely in a good, good situation. Uh, James is going to be interviewing you in a bit later. I might have some questions to jump in and uh, jump in. It's good to hear your voice again. Hey, Peter. Yeah, I'm here. I'm looking forward to this. Well, we're doing it. The past shakes hands of the future to the now, right now. Take it away, James. Welcome to the Common Theater Collective, Mr. Scott. Uh, Welcome. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Very good. Um, your work was brought to my attention by our Poet Laureate of the United States Emeritus, Mr. Uh, Robert Hass, who uh, wrote an essay of, uh, describing uh, one of three books he wrote, a very unique trilogy, Seculum. Uh, the first of those three books is what Mr. Hass uh, wrote an, uh, an essay about and can be found in uh, What Light Can Do. And that was your book, Coming to Jakarta. I hope you could share with us today some thoughts on that trilogy. I understand you have some recent work, a, a book about the writing of the trilogy. Is that correct? Well, yes, well, that book is still in process. The, the poem, uh, Coming to Jakarta, it occupied me for a decade in the 1980s. I began, I was acutely depressed in 1980 for a number of reasons which come up in the poem, one of them being the election of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and I wrote it very quickly, almost on impulse, in about six weeks, and then spent uh, eight years refining it and rewriting it, and the course of that time, um, Bob Hass, uh, I, he and I were both teaching at Cal at that time, and he gave it to a, a version of it to his class to read. And uh, then I got some input from the class, and one of the people in the class actually helped me a lot. The occasion for the poem is the massacre in Indonesia in 1965, where still a lot of people in America are not very aware of the fact, I mean, all the devastation being done by ISIS now is is nothing, really, compared to. We don't know how many people were killed. A, a, a low estimate, the lowest estimate is about 250,000. The safe estimate is uh, half a million, but a lot of people believe it was more than a million, maybe even as much as two million. And, of course, nothing ISIS has done begins to compare to that. <clears throat> and the targets were, first of all, the, the, the Communist Party in Indonesia, which was the, the most westernized uh, party in Indonesia. And in a sense, uh, pro people with Western ideas were the targets of this massacre. And in this case, uh, I believed and had written that the CIA was uh, helping out, and British intelligence, MI6, were helping out. And this just made me feel terrible that uh, there was this massacre, it had happened, and nobody knew about it in America. And that's what uh, led to a kind of uh, 
I, I thought of it as a breakdown time. I think it was really more like some kind of panic attack. The, the, it, the, the attack lasted only 12 hours or so through a night when I couldn't sleep. But I began to write my way out of it, and uh, I did a lot of very rapid writing, not knowing where it was going. I didn't know it was going to be a poem about about Jakarta or about Indonesia until I'd written about 20 pages. Anyway, that's the book that caught Bob Hass's attention, other people's attention, too. It's my best-known poem, I think. And um, and uh, so, yes, he, at the time, he said it was the most important political poem to have been written in the English language for a very long time. So that made me feel better. I went from being very depressed to feeling much better that my depression had led to a product other people liked. As many authors write to heal, this is a poem of healing. It is germane to the conversation, I would, I would argue, as we look at the security state, at the activities yes, of the yes, NSA. I felt that it, it very much was a, a, a process of healing for me, uh, but I feel that uh, there's some kind of analogy to the way that uh, nations heal. This has been particularly difficult for Indonesia because what happened as a result of the massacre was the imposition of a political dictatorship, military dictatorship, um, and the man who came in in 1965 was there until he was ousted for corruption in 1998. And even for a decade after that, the military still ran the country, and you were not allowed to mention the massacre unless you called it the PKI Gestapo, in other words, blaming it on the PKI, which is the Communist Party. The Communist Party did not inaugurate this massacre. They were the victims of it, and they were blamed for it. For the uh, there was a coup attempt, which was I think a false flag attempt, blamed on the communists, and uh, for so until I think 19, 2007 or something like that, quite recently, you could go to jail if you didn't if you mentioned the massacre and didn't blame it on the PKI, and they had a, a whole warehouse full of textbooks that were destroyed in 2007 because uh, they had failed to do the obligatory thing, blame it on the PKI. So uh, the country now is getting out of that, and there have been two movies by an American, Josh Oppenheimer, both of them nominated for an Oscar, by the way, long feature documentaries. First one, The Act of Killing. <clears throat> the second one, The Look of Silence. And because they were on the internet and the government could do nothing about it, Indonesia is now waking up, so to speak, beginning to talk about this thing, having conferences about it. They're going, I think, it's been decided by the government that they will have a, some kind of truth and conciliation, reconciliation process. So uh, you can, t there has been a great healing and art in the form of these two movies uh, played a big role in that act of healing. 
And if I could blow my own horn here, I got an unsolicited email from this Josh Oppenheimer, who I had never met or heard of until then, saying that he had been influenced by my poem and by my prose in making the movies. So there's, um, you know, that, that really makes me feel good that art can have a good social function. I, for uh, for 20 years, I thought I'd been totally useless and that my art wasn't affecting anything at all. But I have a better feeling about it now because of Josh Oppenheimer's movies. Uh, well, well, I'm just going to jump in with one question. I've been reading late, getting to what uh, two archipelagos, the Indonesia, where his massacres took place, and the Philippines. Now, yeah, as I know, in the Philippines, there's the been... Archipelago, one blends into the other. That's what I'm talking about. Before the coming of the, uh, the Dutch and the, the, the Dutch and the Spanish, they were blended perfectly, they were blended fine. But, uh, but now we have two archipelagos. That's one through, uh, through just uh, political boundaries. One is the Philippines, where they did have those, those discussions, where there was not uh, the kind of massacre. In fact, discussions did take place between the Communist Party of the Philippines, the New People's Army, and the, and, and the government, and they seem to have come to that uh, kind, of, uh, kind of a truce, a uh, kind of a truce, where there are two well, Philippines, Red Philippines. and trouble, I think, and the man they've just elected in the Philippines, uh, I, I haven't really researched him, but I've seen allegations that he was in charge of repressive units that were some people have called death squads so they're they're not free of violence but there's nothing nothing like the violence that you had this kind of huge frenzy it was it it went i think beyond what anyone had originally imagined the 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 army certainly started the massacring but uh, it it, it it people went berserk and there were uh, of course there were a lot of personal vendettas if if you owed money to somebody the simple thing was to kill them and so on but yes it was uh, the the result of colonialism uh was was bad in both archipelagos but uh, eventually much worse in indonesia you make the argument, or I, I draw the conclusion, that coming to Jakarta tells a story of how that action taken was trotted out as a successful trumping of communism and sold as an idea, perhaps, to underwrite the adventure of Vietnam. Yes, it happened at the same time as Vietnam, and uh, one of the analyses of why the Americans wanted to do it because they were very keen to have the army go in and take care of the Communist Party, but they knew that the army was frightened of China. And they wanted to put what they called a shield in Vietnam to keep it in, to interpose between China and Indonesia. And if you had a big U.S. presence in Vietnam, you didn't need to win a war, you just needed to be there. That's the key, I think, to all these wars, where these hopeless wars we keep on fighting. Afghanistan will never win that one. Uh, Iraq, we're back in. Uh, we're never going to win in any conventional sense. But the presence of U.S. troops is what matters, and in the case of Iraq, it means that the government of Kazakhstan is willing to make contracts with Chevron and Exxon 
and uh, not fear Russia because he's got Russian armies to the north, but now there's an American army to the south. So it's, um, it, it, it doesn't make what sense on one level, it does make sense on another level, and uh, it's imperialism. It looks like the business of war. I was, um, the poem is less, I mean, it, it, if you read my poem, it's not going to tell you an enormous amount about what happened in Indonesia, although it, it did some things, and I, I learned a lot writing the poem and researching that led to certain prose things I wrote, and uh, one of the consequences, which is kind of amusing, I, I actually got to debate William Colby, who the, was the, at that time the ex-head of the CIA, and before that head of the Asia desk at the time of the massacre. So. Uh, it, uh, it, 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 it created minor waves among intellectuals and so on. Um, but most of the poem was just uh, the feeling of uh, which I think most people have. You know, this is an awful world and we would love to do something about it, but we can't, or we can't seem to get anything done. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of the personal and the political. You mentioned earlier that a, a book in progress is the writing of the uh, a book about the writing of this trilogy. Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, first of all, I, I did an article for something called uh, the Asia uh, uh, Asia Political Journal, uh, in which I just talked about how writing the poem. Well, no, I think I better begin somewhere else. Uh, I, I have a, a friend, a former student, but now a very good friend and helper and colleague, uh, co-author, who uh, loved the poem and uh, persuaded me two years ago to sit down and do some interviews uh, explaining the poem, because the poem really needs explanation. And so he interviewed me, there are a total of 22 interviews, each one about half an hour long, and uh, he has asked me matter-of-fact questions about what's happening in the poem, and that's the core of the book. And originally it was going to be the book, I was just going to get, transcribe those essays and write a few introductory words, uh, and that would be it. But, you know, interview, being interviewed by him, it took over a year. Um, I thought more and more about the poem, and I realized that the poem had really been very important to me in developing my own political ideas. I, I, I'm known for talking about deep politics, the politics that doesn't get mentioned, the, the locus of power in a zone that is so hidden that the media, the, 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 the mainstream media never write about it. And I realized that I had uh, been empowered to develop those ideas by writing the poem. The poem helped my political thinking, particularly because there was one event. I recovered a memory in, the po in writing the poem. It comes at the very end of the poem. 
And you would have thought it was such a vivid event that it would be something you'd never forget. But I had totally repressed it. And this is what happened. Uh, there's somebody, a friend of mine called Al McCoy, wrote a book called The Politics of Heroin. And I was writing a book called The War Conspiracy at the same time. This is way back in 72, 1972. And uh, he came out here on his way to Indochina. And I phoned somebody that I had met at an anti-war uh, event a few months before. This man had said he was in special forces, and he had seen opium loaded onto CIA planes, Air America. So, and I had a contact for him. So I phoned him, and I said, would you be willing to talk to my friend Al McCoy and myself? This was a late afternoon, and he said, sure. And he gave us his address in Palo Alto. And the next morning, Al and I drove down to Palo Alto, and we knocked on, we walked up a few steps to his door, banged on the door, and he came out with his fingers to his lips, indicating that we ought to speak. And this was kind of surprising, because we had come to talk to him. And then he led us down the stairs, and then he began to talk, and he said, look at my, look at my MG, and we looked at it. It was a convertible with a steel door, and there was a hole in the door about a foot in diameter. And he said, and then he said, now look at the floor of my MG, and the floor was made of wood. And he said, they use an implosive device to bomb my car. That must have been my old unit. They're telling me I can't talk to you. Well, I had just witnessed a, a terrorist event, very, a small one, admittedly, but the use, the use of terror to intimidate and silence this guy we were going to talk to. And this was all on the basis of a phone call that I had had with him the night before. So you might think this is a pretty uh, unforgettable thing. In fact, is I forgot about it. And so did Al McCoy, and eventually when Al McCoy uh, wrote the final edition of his major book, The Politics of Heroin, he mentions my account of it in the preface. He quotes from the poem, Coming to Jakarta, because that's how he recovered his memory was through my sharing with him the poem. Well, you know, I think quite a lot of this goes on. We repress, if there are things that don't, why would I not remember something like that? I think it, it's just too too scary. I think if there are things that, uh, that we don't want to think about, we repress them. And I think the job of poetry is to bring our consciousness back to those things that we don't want to face and uh, and also to lead a way out because um, if i hadn't found a way out by healing the poem i might not have recovered that memory it's significant to me it was the i recovered a lot of memories in writing the poem but that is literally the very last one on the last page but one of the poem and uh, that's because it was the scariest of all in my relatively un unscary life so that's where I think that 
poetry is uh, can contribute to politics. And you were asking about the book I'm writing now. I wrote an essay about recovering that memory and how it led to my notion of deep politics. I published that, uh, I think, in 2011. And uh, then I realized that should go in this book. So the total title of my book is Poetry and Terror, the Poetics and Politics of Coming to Jakarta, because the, uh, the process the, uh, is, is as much political as is po poetical. So that's the core of the book, is those interviews, uh, a couple of introductions, a prose essay I wrote way back in the 1980s, informed by the research which I had done for the poem, and then this, you might say, the most original part is this, how poetry can lead to a, an informed, deeper sense of politics. That's the book. We speak of poetry as healing. It was a healing for yourself, and I believe bringing the focus to the reading audience, to pieces of history they might have heard about in passing. I mean, even Hollywood films, like uh, uh, that Mel Gibson film with um, uh, Lethal Weapon, made reference to running opium out of Vietnam and the silence that is enforced by those who are still doing it. When you see real accounts such as you give it brings it out of the uh, the uh, the imagination and brings it into the real uh, which then perhaps creates the uh, the uh, the attention of the of the group to of the group focus to do some more research and that's where the healing starts yeah and actually it even raises questions of what is real because uh, i don't think my belief is as human beings we're not really supposed to be living in the kind of system that we're living in now. <coughs> and that, uh, and that we're, I'm not talking about Indonesia now, I'm not talking about my own poetry. For, since the beginning of time, I think that uh, the, the world has been an unsatisfactory world, and we are, there's something in us, or certainly most of us, or some of us, that wants a better world, and poetry is our way of grasping for that other world. And that other world may not exist yet, but that doesn't mean for me that it's not real, maybe not even more real than this uh, insane world that we're living in now. And we're caught between two different kinds of worlds, and poetry is the vehicle to escape from this one to, to the other one and back. Um that there is an innate goodness in humans that is frustrated by our current civilization is referenced perhaps by you on page 25 as you uh, speak of the horrors of the Indonesian uh, civil war and you say or you gentle reader let us examine carefully the good reasons you and I don't enjoy reading this yeah right oh, you got the poem there yes um, and, uh, you know, I, I was writing this out as a process. Uh, I didn't understand the reasons I didn't enjoy, and the poem continues to explore them and actually goes back into my childhood, and then I realized that I, too, was violent as a child, and I have to wonder why that is. I'm still wondering, by the way. <laughs> Even after the interview with my friend uh, Freeman Ng, uh, 
he, uh, I, 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 I was a lot wiser about the evil in myself, but it's as I believe, it's, there's no proof for this whatsoever, but I believe that the, it is, uh, we're most human when we're behaving in, in, in concert with other people and getting along with other people. And if, of course, uh, there are times when all of us don't, but I attribute that to the way that we are deformed by the frustrations of life. And some people, of course, have terrible lives and become terribly deformed. Um, now, you can't prove that. And I have friends, uh, I have one friend in particular, who believes that, no, it's, uh, it's, it's equally human to be a saint or to be a sinner, that there, there isn't a preference in human nature for one over the other. I think there is a genetic tendency to become better than we are now, and that we're not... As a, as a species, uh, maybe we haven't really reached the fullness of development when we will be better than we are now. You know, cannibalism used to be widespread. Now, it still occurs, but we usually regard it as uh, pretty dysfunctional if it happens. And, uh, and uh, there's, Freud himself said that certain desires become repressed, and he pointed to cannibalism as being the, the one that has been most uh, widely uh, suppressed as, as a rule. So that's just a belief. And I think I, even if I didn't believe that, I think I still would write poetry, but I do believe it, and it's, my poetry is very connected to that belief. Peter, as we speak of poems and healing, um, so often you are uh, asked to trot out uh, the world on fire and the reasons behind it. Would you share with us, sir, a poem of your own? Love that. A poem? Oh, my gosh. I should have been ready for that. Uh, I, I, I suppose I do a poem that's completely different, just to... Uh, I, you know, I'm now 87. Uh, my... There are a lot of things I no longer do that I used to do. And if I can just find, yes, here's the book I want. Uh, this is a book called Tilting Point that came out in 2012. And part of it is political, but this particular poem is not. It's, uh, it's about what happens to me when I go out uh, for a walk in the morning and Excuse me just a second here. Here it is. I go out for a walk in the morning, and uh, a young jogger, female jogger, aged about 18 and very short shorts, uh, comes running towards me and brushes against me as she goes by. And for some weird reason, this uh, gets me interested. And I have written this poem. It's a, dedicated to Allegra. Allegra is all of these women. Uh, but you say it still happens. I, the odds are about one in three that it will happen any given morning. So I wrote this poem to Allegra. I walk towards you in the morning dark, and you come running. Did I discern a spark of recognition in your wayward glance of all we share in our too brief romance? Yes. 
For a moment you smile at me as if embarrassed by this brevity. Ironic that you, at maybe seventeen, should race so avidly to the unseen, and I should haltingly, at eighty-one, still mindful of so much I have not done, pace step by step as my sclerotic eye, obsessed with the vastness of what is nearby, Narcissi stiffening upwards by degrees, buds bursting open in the tulip trees, while simultaneously in a squall hundreds of star magnolia petals fall. I is roused to a final furtive peak towards the scintillations of your silken shorts. And if I called out, sweetheart, not so fast, we need to make each precious moment last. It is too late. You have already passed. Enlightening my sweet confusion, is love no more than brief illusion? Or rather, a predetermined grace to enhance our inevitable race. It's maybe not the poem you expected, but <laughs> you, know, I, I, you caught me blindsided. I should have had a poem ready, and I didn't. Hey, there are plenty of political ones. You're Peter. You don't know this they tend way. to be too long, though. Peter, I don't know if you take uh, uh, requests, but I'm looking at your homing poem, a winter poem. It's, I, it seems to speak to some themes that have been in this interview. I wondered if you, you would read your, your, your opening title poem to Tilting Point. Oh, yeah, that's a, that, that's a much more serious poem, of course. I, I have to get to it. Homing, a winter poem. Uh, it's relevant. I should mention that I'm a Canadian, so I come from north of the border, and that the tundra swans, uh, in the winter, they come down to the delta. I go to, I go to see them every winter. It's, it's a sacred thing for me. And then in the summer, they fly up to northern Canada, or even to Siberia. There, there, there are green, uh, swans and cranes that come here from Siberia every winter. And that is the occasion of the poem, uh, and it's dedicated to Thomas Tranströmer, a Swedish poet who has a similar image in one of his poems. I'll skip the epigraph because it takes too long to explain. So here's the poem. Thank you for asking for that one. That's one of my favorite poems. So here we go. Tundra swans have come back from the frozen Arctic to the Delta marshes where I, far from home, drawn by a view of the open sea and by the ancient future in the fantastic gospels of Jubu and Nortona, have spent my years building structures for that dawn, each poem a conduit from our irreplaceable present to a glimpse of odyssey towards a promised land. Structures I at last perceive amid the remnant of a tribe who have lost faith in themselves, seeing their hands stained with blood, their factory doors closing, their songbirds silenced, were mostly made of sand in a tidal area. But even at my age, sensing the sad range of human folly, my habits are entrenched. 
we are what we have become, still hoping to please my dead parents, I go on blindly building in the space created by wars as the tundra swans, inspired by the tilt of the earth, get ready to leave for the exact northern marshes where they were born. Well, Peter, thank you for being part of this irreplaceable presence at the Common Thread Collective. I sincerely hope you'll agree to come back and read more poetry in the future. Yeah. I'd love to. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Hey, Peter. Yo, Peter. This is me, Diamond Dave. And I just want to say to you, I felt you. I was right there. I'd be 78. Okay. I'd be 78. Which of you had pulled out these poems? Who, who, who wanted to read here tundra, the homing poem? That was James, but it took me right back to where, it took me where I'm, just before I turned 78, Peter. Okay. I'm thinking I'm an old man now. No, you're a young man. I'm all over. I'm about to tell you. To, to, take a deep breath. I'm about to tell you. Oh, I'm an old man now. It's all over. Almost 80. And you're over 80. It's all late. Then I heard the voice of the Spirit. I believe you too. And here's what she said. I'm a Sufi. You heard the voice of the Spirit, and here's what she said. Learn to love, love to learn, never ends. Learn to love, love to learn, this never ends. Because that same situation, I'll be walking along a similar situation, and uh, I'll exchange glances, and it becomes more than a glance with some young woman as she's going by. She checks me out. I check her out. We have a moment of communication, as like you were saying so yeah, well. well. They check you out. I'm not sure they're really checking me out. But not in the way they checked you they, out, too. Uh, they're, they're polite. They, uh, I think they're... They, 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 if I if I don't nudge them, they're not going to uh, be nasty to me. Are we, are we, are we done now? Well, I'm about to one more sentence, Peter. Yes? Uh, uh, Peter, uh, 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 acknowledging each I'm having trouble hearing you. Okay, acknowledging each other's existence. What I, I said, I learned to love, love to learn. That love will get you everywhere. Hate will get you nowhere. And that's where I am. And it does go. And it does go. And we connect to us. And we realize we're all on the planet together. Did we plan well, it? And here we are. You see, I think that's true. I talk to this. I, <clears throat> we didn't get into this, but uh, Theodore Adorno talks about alterity, that all art has a vision of some other world, and that's what makes it art. And I add to that that there's an alternative. There's, some of the art is true. I mean, some of the some of some art just creates fantasy. Some art creates truth. I think what you just said is true. As I said, I've been, uh, it's been 15 years since I had talked to you, and I was well, more than that, but I have my sobriety, I haven't had a drink in 15 years, so these things are opening up. And as a Sufi, I understand with the dervish. The dervish is about the dervish. It's a lifelong process. The doorway, but the, the door doorway between the two worlds, the world within and the world without, and that's what we're about weaving together. That's what art's about. That's what poetry is about. The spiritual path is about. Is this doorway, the doorway between the two worlds, the world within and the world without? Exactly. So, Peter, glad to be on the same page with you. Loving you, brother. We be doing what we're doing. It's called community and communication. Take it away, James. I was going to ask him if he's interested in why Rumi is in my book, my prose book. 
Well, I didn't know he was, but do you know that Rumi was not just a poet, but a dervish. And dervish is, uh, is the Farsi word for doorway, doorway between the two worlds. Where is that? Where is that in your, in a, do you have that in his prose book? Do you, do you know, do you know where Rumi was born? I know in Persia. Tell me more. Though. I know he's in Afghanistan, and then he and his family were pushed all the way to Turkey when the uh, when he was the born in the city of Balkh, B A L K H, in Afghanistan. One of the oldest cities in the world. Uh, when he was 13 years old, the Mongols arrived, and because the city of Balkh resisted, and I think they killed somebody in the the ruling family, the, the Khans. They killed everybody in the city. They, they, the city was once supposed to be the largest city in the world. It was the, a major city on the Silk Road. And uh, the Mongols leveled it. And since then, it's just been a pile of rubble. And that was what Rumi had to cope with in his life. And that, to me, is, uh, you know, his, his life was a healing of that disaster. I look at the major poets in my life, like uh, Virgil, Dante, Wordsworth, they've all contemplated, uh, or T.S. Eliot, they, they've all contemplated disaster like that. And their art, which is the art that really interests me, is a poetry that is a healing from disaster. And and that's and that's where the I jumping in to say that I feel like that's where the the bravery of poetry really comes from because when you when you live through or witness or know of <clears throat> these these tragedies um, and then having having that that wherewithal and the bravery to write about it. Um, I think is is kind of the, the kind of opens the floodgates um, for whatever comes next and and that healing we've been talking about. I agree with that. I agree. You, when something like that happens, either you're crushed, or else you have to summon up a strength uh, to respond to that kind of catastrophe, which is beyond the strength that you would need for a normal life. And then, if you tend to also to be creative, then you have a strong kind of creation. See, that's to me why Wordsworth's prelude, he, he witnessed the French Revolution, which he believed in, and then he saw the massacres and the guillotine, and the, this so shocked him, he went into depression, and then recovered and wrote the prelude, and eventually, after a few years, he, he added in what he couldn't have written about before, which was his horror at the, at the, at the killings, and where you take someone like uh, Byron, who was a great poet, probably a more gifted poet in some ways, and his epic, Don Juan, isn't about anything like that. It's just a chatty poem. It doesn't have the substance because it's not built on the experience of catastrophe that makes for really great poetry. Yes, yeah, so... Wordsworth speaks to a, a wise passiveness. Um, your books reference a Buddhist tradition of being mindful without doing. The doing is the looking. It is a simple doing, a sort of passiveness. Nor less I deem, Wordsworth tells us, that there are powers which of themselves are minds impress that we can feed this mind of ours in a right. wide passiveness. My wife has uh, going to do a... Uh, she's a 
and she helps people by phone, and she needs the phone at four. So I think I'd probably get better get off now. But I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed the part when we got off the air. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Peter Dale Scott. We really appreciate you taking the time to call in and talk about so many uh, important world events and and how poetry can can kind of unlock the key to those and not only help the the writer but to understand better, but also so the reader, um, I think poetry is that kind of accessible form, and uh, and uh, I I'm enjoying reading your work, and I look forward to reading more. And, and to be continued. To be continued. You're welcome the, any the, time. This is about okay. community. This is about people coming together. It's about free, free speech. Yeah, using these vehicles of the of the internet, we can reach around the world, and people can listen to it. So this is a whole step forward. It's about Peter. It's called doing more together than any of us can do on our own. Bye-bye, I'm going to say. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Peter. Take care, and thank you. Um, thank you, James Ellis, for for uh, being in, in contact with Peter Dale Scott. I know that you've uh, long read his work and uh, got to got to meet him and uh, and invite him on to the Common Thread Collective. I think uh, it was a, a fantastic uh, and esteemed addition to today's episode. Well, thank you for having us, Clover Val. It was my pleasure. Yes, and I hope to to see you back here, James Ellis, as another as a guest interviewer in the future, because you have uh, so much brilliance to share yourself. Um, so thank you for for guiding that discussion with us, with Professor Peter Dale Scott. Um, he has his own website, PeterDaleScott.net, um, with lots of resources to his writings, not just poetry, um, but uh, some some even uh, more hard hitting, uh, deeper political research, um, such as the deep state and the road to 9-11, um, a very well uh, respected and received uh, scholar, uh, professor at UC Berkeley, former ambassador uh, in Canada, and he was part of the, uh, on, he served with the United Nations as well. Um, so very nice to have, very nice uh, oh, to bring that into today's show. Let me take it higher. Thank you, thank you. So let's let's play a little music here. Let's play a little music here and uh, transition. And you're listening to the Common Thread Collective here on Mutiny Radio. FM, and you can come down and join us at the corner of 21st and Florida Streets in San Francisco.
Thank you for listening to the Common Thread Collective here on MutinyRadio.fm. The Common Thread Collective happens every Friday from 3 to 6 here at 21st in Florida. Hope you'll come through. Today we're giving a bon voyage to Dave as he heads off on his summer cross-country journey. Um, but I'll be here most of the summer uh, holding it down here. So please do come through. Bring some music. Play what you got to play. Bring some poetry. Writing. Say what you got to say. Um, and your activism as well. So... Uh, I'm Global Val, and I'm certainly happy to be here on Friday, June 10th, 2016. And we've got uh, our friend, uh, musician Bloodflower, out there sitting at the piano, and he's going to play us some music. So uh, everybody kick back, relax, and enjoy for a few minutes of musical, musical flavors from Bloodflower. It is hard to continue. For continuity is effort to be or it, not it, to be. It is hard to continue. <laughs> We're getting that microphone set up again for Bloodflower. And then, James, you can start from the beginning of your piece, just two lines before. Are you knocking it? Knocking it? What's going on here? What's going on? This is live radio, folks. This is part of the fun of the Common Thread Collective. I hope we <laughs> moving forward with uh, making sure that the making sure that the nobody that the host doesn't trip over the microphone line. <laughs> Here we go. 
Ta-da. It had stopped raining. The roads were clean and the dust had been washed from the trees. The earth was refreshed and the frogs were loud in the pond. They were big and their throats were swollen with pleasure. The grass was sparkling with tiny drops of water and there was peace in the land after the heavy downpour. The cattle were soaking wet, but during the rain they never took shelter, and now they were contentedly gazing. Some boys were playing in the little stream the rain had made. By the roadside, they were naked, and it was good to see their shining bodies and their bright eyes. They were having the time of their life, and how happy they were. Nothing else mattered. And they smiled out of joy as one said something to them, though they couldn't understand a word. The sun was coming out, and the shadows were deep. Possessions make the mind weary. Acquisition. Whether of knowledge, of property, of virtue, makes for insensitivity. The nature of the mind is to acquire, to absorb, is it not? Or rather, the pattern it created for itself is one of gathering in. And in that very activity, the mind is preparing its own weariness, boredom, interest. Curiosity is the beginning of acquisition, which soon becomes boredom. And the urge to be free from boredom is another form of possession. So the mind goes from boredom to interest to boredom again till it is utterly weary. And these successive waves of interest and weariness <laughs> are regarded as existence. A person asks, how is one to be free from acquiring without further acquisition? Hmm. Only by allowing the truth of the whole process of acquisition to be experienced and not by trying to be non-acquisitive. Detached. To be non-acquisitive is another form of acquisition which soon becomes wearisome. The difficulty, if one may use that word, lies not in the verbal understanding of what has been said, but in experiencing the false as the false. To see the truth in the false is the beginning of wisdom. The difficulty is for the mind to be still. For the mind is always worried. It is always after something, acquiring or denying, searching and finding. The mind is never still. It is in continuous movement, the past overshadowing the present makes its own future. It is a movement in time and there is hardly ever an interval between thoughts. 
One thought follows another without a pause. The mind is ever making itself sharp and so wearing itself out. If a pencil is being sharpened all the time, soon there will be nothing left of it. Similarly, the mind uses itself constantly and is exhausted. The mind is always afraid of coming to an end. But living is ending from day to day. It is the dying to all acquisition, to memories, to experiences to the past. How can there be living if there is experience? Experience is knowledge, memory. And is memory the state of experiencing? In the state of experiencing is their memory as the experiencer. The purgation of the mind is living, is creation. Beauty is in experiencing, not in experience. For experience is ever of the past, and the past is not the experiencing. It is not the living. Mm. The purgation of the mind it's tranquility of the heart. J. Krishnamurti. Dancing sideways down the ribbon of time. The past, uh, the past, uh, the, the dancing sideways down the ribbon of time. The, the past, past uh, the, the lit, path they had lit, lit by the echo, by the echo behind. behind. And uh, it's the clearing the mind, the filling the heart. Shakes that said the hand, the heart, the past shakes hands of the future through the. Through the, through the through the now through the now through the now getting excited hey James that was so beautiful and we got another James thanks Ready for reading Jay Krishnamurti oh my goodness and so thanks Bloodflower for playing and Getting ready for the, for the for next James. voice. Hey, Bloodflower, can you give me something in a natural minor key, please? There you go, James. Five dollars? <laughs> <laughs> and the change. <laughs> Just some change. You have to change. Very change funny, Bloodflower. <laughs> He's a funny guy. Look at him up there. Right? All right. Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> huh? We're having fun here uh, yeah, at the Common Thread. Yeah, I was born ready, I'm you. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're, you're going to wait a little longer with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give me any ideas. All right, hello, folks. My name is James Conrad. And I have my book here, Zurdo Cleans House, which is available on Amazon.com. And the uh, story continues. Uh, just to kind of put anyone who's just tuning in now who hasn't been following the series uh, Zurdo has been wrongfully convicted of murder and child molestation he's done time in San Quentin prison he's gotten out because he was found innocent there was no way he could have committed the crime since the crime was committed by a left-handed man and he Lorenzo Carlos Ruiz being nicknamed Zurdo uh, he unfortunately ended up uh, getting diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer. And now he has avenged himself. But now there's going to be a little bit of a side trip in episode 71 
And today we're getting a double feature. We're doing episode 71 and 72 of Zordo Cleans House. Well, I just wanted to make up, make up for the uh, deprivation I gave you, Richard. So here, the story continues with episode 71 of Zordo Cleans House. Hector Morales looked at his computer screen with a concerned frown as he read an online article about the death of Judge Malcolm Connors, shivering a little as he read that the crime took place at the Campbell Inn, where his friend Casey Keene asked, asked him to rent a room for him. When he asked Casey why, Casey told him, it's a long story, too complicated to explain. Hector knew there was something fishy about the whole business. Chewing his lip as he tingled with curiosity, he opened a new browser tab and punched Kendall Reichert's name into a search engine. Beneath the reports of his death, he saw an article dating from March the 1st, 2000 with the headline, Ruiz guilty of murder, child abuse. After clinking the, clicking the link, he skimmed the text of the article, noticing not, noticing not only Judge Reichardt's name, not, not only Kendall Reichardt's name, but those of Michael Kerr, Judge Malcolm Connors, and Gregory Keene, and his friend Casey, the adopted son of Gregory Keene. Hmm, said Hector, wrinkling his brow with concentration as he remembered that Gregory Keene, Michael Kerr, Kendall Reichardt, and Judge Malcolm Connors had all died in fiery explosions not long ago, which he confirmed by performing a web search on each in different browser tabs. Just then, his cell phone rang. He took it out of his pocket and looked at the view screen with a frown, for he did not recognize the number, but answered the call nonetheless. Hello, he said. Is this Hector Morales? This is Hector, he said. Who's speaking? This is Raymond Jeffries, and I'm with the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department. I'm calling in regard to the bombing at the Campbell Inn that happened just a few days ago on the 14th. You were on the list of tenants that the front desk clerk gave to me, so I just wanted to get in touch and ask if you saw anything unusual that night. Funny you should mention that, said Hector with a quick, subtle touch of twitch of surprise. I was actually thinking of talking to you. Okay, said Deputy Jeff Jeffries. Did you want to come and meet me over at the station on Younger? Yes, said Hector. I can come there right now. Okay, fantastic, said Deputy Jeffries. See you then. Hector drove to the sheriff's office and saw Deputy Jeffries waiting for him outside in front. As soon as the two men met, they went inside the building, walked down the hall to a private office. After Deputy Jeffries closed the door behind them, they sat down across from each other at the table while Jeffries clicked on a tape recorder. So what was the nature of your business at the Campbell Inn, asked Jeffries, sliding his reading glasses up on the bridge of his nose and picking up the pen he had set by the notebook in front of him. My friend Casey asked me to rent a room for, for him there and put it in my name, said Hector. He said that his friend needed to take care of some business. I asked him what it was, and he said that he couldn't say it was private. He gave me the money for the room plus a thousand bucks, so I told him, okay, if it's that important to you, I'll do it. So I rented the room, and I thought nothing of it until I heard about the car bombing. So you suspect that Casey Keene had something to do with it, asked Deputy Jeffries. Yeah, said Hector. I just put two and two together. Then I looked up Judge Connors on the internet, 
and saw that he was the judge in a trial where Casey was a witness, like back in 2000. And the other guy who got blown up by the shark tank, Kendall Reichert, yeah, him. I read that he was the prosecutor at the trial, and Casey's stepfather, who died in that house fire they said was an accident, and that other guy who burned to death, they were witnesses. I thought there was something strange about it all, and when I saw the names in the article from 2000 about it, I figured that just might have something to do with what happened at the Campbell Inn. So you think that Casey murdered Judge Connors? I don't want to jump to conclusions, but I have a feeling he might have had something to do with it. Also, considering everything else, I don't think what happened to Michael Kerr, Casey's stepdad, was an accident. Yeah, I can see that, said Deputy Jeffries with a thoughtful frown. He reached into his pocket, dug out his cell phone, and called George Sykes, an FBI agent who'd been assigned to the case. Hey, George, he said, it's Ray. Yeah, good news. I think we might have a suspect. Tune in next week for episode 73 of Zordo Cleans House, available on Amazon.com. Now, before I depart the stage, I just want to give our listeners out there uh, some important information um, about Mutiny Radio. And uh, basically, we are a uh, we are supported. Uh, Well, we're an independent station, and a lot of our support comes from uh, various donors and from certain sponsors of ours, and also from listeners like yourself. And monthly dues that we pay every month. Yeah, we do have monthly (laughs) dues. That's mostly what we do. There are are (laughs) monthly dues from the various uh, people who put in the time here. So there's numerous, uh, well, here's a a chance for you listeners to be a part of uh, keeping Mutiny Radio uh, able to bring you excellent programming such as, you know, Pam's Comedy Clubhouse, Pam's Happy Hour Open Mic, Labor and Love, Women's Magazine, and numerous other uh, programs. To get involved, it's dead simple. Here's how it works. Just make out a money order for a dollar or more to Mutiny Radio and send that money order for a dollar or more made out to Mutiny Radio to the following address. Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street, San Francisco, California, 94110. Once again, that is Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street, San Francisco, California, 94110. We look forward to your support, and we hope to continue bringing you quality programming. Thanks a million. Thanks so much. Thanks, James Conrad. Thanks, Blood Flower. Another way to lend a hand is coming in and lending a hand. We'll be here every Friday from 3 to 6. It's uh, the door is open, the arms are open, open heart, and we're interested in getting this flow going of talking what happening, uh, pushing the envelope, social, cultural, personal, and uh, political change. Here we be. And in fact, it's, hey, uh, Val, uh, Sarah, welcome back. This is uh, Sarah, who's directly connected with this community, who's been out there in Greece and Turkey with the refugees. And here's Ahmed, too, who's become a kind of a regular guest, talking about these vital places, talking about what's happening there. We're trying to put this part of this is the revolutionary message of peace, love, and understanding, and doing more together than any of us can do on our own. That's what we be about. So I met. Hey, Sarah. So good to see you. And that, 
No, we got it. That's all right. Yeah, we got we got a mic for each one of you. Yeah, we're just gonna widen the, widen the base of that uh, mic stand, and then I think it kind of so, pushes. Yeah, push pu- push it in, pull it up, push it up, like a. There you go. I want to thank Tyler. Tyler is like our new intern here, and it's very helpful to have a set of hands on on the microphone situation. Oh, this yeah. is a roll your. Own. We, we traditionally ro- go do kind of a roll your own here, um, but <laughs> but it's much better to have folks on hand. Thanks, Tyler, so much. And yeah, welcome Sarah. Welcome Ahmed. Um, wow, talk about the 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 front lines of social, cultural, and political change, which we've got Sarah here who's been attending uh, to the f- refugee crisis in Greece and Turkey. And we've got Ahmed here Ahmed. Who's, uh, whose memoir, You Are Under Arrest for Masterminding the Egyptian Revolution. Um, <laughs> we are here on, on, the, on the cutting edge of cultural, social, and political change. And Sarah, you were there, uh, you left some time ago, a few months ago, about three or four months ago, is it? Uh, to Lesbos and beyond. I went in early January. Oh, yeah, early January. So you've been seeing some, some of the results of this upheavals. Uh, that have been Syria. Uh, people from all of people coming through. People drown, uh, drowning, people being dragged out of the water. And, uh, as a river, if you will, a river of refugees coming from these countries. Libya and Egypt. Egypt seems a little more difficult because they're crossing the lines but uh, but uh, but I'm mad you were there you grew up there you're part of it well what uh, how do you see uh, Egypt connecting with this river of refugees and how can we find that common thread you two haven't seen each other before but now we're getting on the same page what Let's I would like to say about this is actually a big warning because uh, under the current dictatorship in Egypt which is a military dictatorship that achieved power through a coup d'etat in contradiction with American laws in contradiction with international laws so there should be sanctions against this regime this regime is being aided funded and uh, 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 armed and this regime is every day committing war crimes against its own people through air bombing of civilian houses through assassinations torture to death through corruption and uh, a total destruction of the country. The country is breaking apart, and when it does, if this situation continues, this will be four times at least the problem we see now with Syria. This is going to be massively, seriously, a huge humanitarian disaster that is not going to be touching only one area in the world. This will have ramifications that I believe could uh, uh, stir a huge change in the course of how humanity is now in a very negative way. Because imagine a hundred million people fleeing from a war zone torn Egypt where there is nowhere to go because actually Egyptians live only in 5% of the Egyptian land where it's livable. Hmm. So you have 100 million people in the Nile Valley and that is very tight. And then when the disaster hits, they will have to go. There is no other place for them to stay. So this is what we are looking at. The current US administration is arming this regime, is giving them cover, legal cover, uh, media cover, etc. The Republicans, on the other hand, they want to have alliances with this kind of dictatorships in order to defeat what they call Islamic 
terrorism while that terrorism that they call Islamic which we never call Islamic by the way these are Islamists and it's very different uh, uh, those terrorists that are using violence that are attacking people in the Middle East and killing them most of all are doing this why because of grievances injustices tyranny corruption when your house gets bombed by your government and people are dead we can face this differently maybe I would face this with sadness with grief and I would try to combat this nonviolently but someone else would go crazy because you can't expect everybody to be sane when they lose their loved ones and they will go into extremes they would be willing to sacrifice themselves in what is known as suicide bombing in order to kill as many of those whoever different or what like just to do something in anger because you lose your mind if we want to put an end to this first we have to put an end into supporting tyrannies supporting killers and murderers we have to put a stop in the militarism in the interventions in arming the wrong guys all the time why do these things problems are solved with arms problems cannot be solved with violence violence begets violence right and everybody is suffering with this, with this cycle who should stop it those who have supposedly the biggest strengths because they should also show restraint they should show uh, maturity they should show uh, an ability to see the bigger picture but this is not what is happening state department always through my experience in my meetings at the State Department, they have the Cold War mentality of we have to support our SOBs against their SOBs, whoever it is. Right. So, yeah, this right. is it. And we, will, and we will continue to arm them and profit from, the arm, from armament. We're going to have the problem with the word we. The we is not they. They're doing this. Right. Saudi Arabia, we have Saudis in American planes, hardly using, dropping American bombs in On Yemen. Yemen. In yes, Yemen. Killing scores of civilians in Yemen. And that Wahhabi crazy government of Saudi Arabia which is responsible anyway in giving terrorists a justification for using violence because of their Wahhabism which is foreign to Muslims Wahhabism. something that started less than 200 years ago and Wahhabism it comes out of the Sunni the Sunni uh, the, so we have Sunnis and Shias killing one another you mentioned the suicide bombings suicide bombers going into into a Shia mosque uh, a Shia mosque because somehow they, they, they're killing, killing by killing themselves making shrapnel out of their very bones and tearing and killing people because they happen to be Shias rather than Sunnis having to be born one way or another that's they and the, 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 the State Department as you said has been these folks, most Americans don't even know the difference between a Shia and a Shia and a Shia and a Shia and what's happening. So, but the we, 
that we're talking about is the people of the world who are not part of that. That's the we I'm talking about. Right. The we, like Sarah. Like Sarah, yeah. Like Sarah took all the took all, decided on to go to the Isle of Lesbos and, and uh, to lend a hand with the refugees coming out of this situation. This very situation in Syria. There is once uh, uh, there is once a uh, pan-Arabism where Syria and, and Egypt and so on were one country. Now people are yes, killing each other. Yes, it was the United Arab Republic and the capital was in Cairo. That didn't last long. But Sarah, you were well, you've been with the refugees. You're hearing the refugees. They're coming in by whatever way. It's like a river. Not that they have choice, but they just want to get away from these bombs, these barrel bombs and all of this. Tell us what you hear and how you feel. Well, I spent a lot of time. Uh, I spent the first three months on Lesbos. I spent the last two months I was gone in Izmir, um, really doing a pretty close one-on-one -on -one work with an artist couple from Syria. And filling myself in on what the situation really is because you can't tell from reading the U.S. press even if you read the indie press even if you read the entire world's press you can't tell what's going on uh, there's just not enough getting out and it's too conflicting so I got it from the horse's mouth and it's, it and, it's and it's just like Ahmed said and pretty much as I suspected Assad is a dictator the whole oh. Arab world since the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the carving up uh, the neo-colonial carving up uh, among the the allied nations that won World War One. Uh, the entire situation, every Arab nation, most Muslim nations have been under uh, this uh, colonial, yeah, colonialism. But this this which has been exacerbated in recent years, even with sort of technical um, uh, autonomy or. Um, national, you know, aspirations met to some degree. The the cultural hegemony, the financial hegemony. Much of what's going on in the in the Middle East has been a reaction to that. And the flip side of the coin is the dictators who like their power. They want to stay in power. They they're being courted by the West to a degree that's that's firmly fixes them in that luxurious, powerful seat that they're not willing to give up for anything, and, and they go to farther and farther extremes to keep it. And so Assad is doing what it, Sisi is doing in Egypt, Assad is doing in Syria. And the imprisonments, the bombings, the assassinations, this is at the root cause of the refugee crisis, and the U.S. has a tremendous amount of blame on this particular score. Um, well, yeah, the U.S. has been arming various groups that they claim to be, you know, like you said, like our SOBs, right? The good, yeah. the, 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 they're all bad guys because they're fighting, but these guys are better, are so we're going to arm these guys. guys. But there's so many groups that it, this, you know, this uprising in Syria created this big vacuum for milita militant groups to come through, and so I'm sure you, you've, you know, with your work with the the refugees there have have heard about just these these people coming in who were not the you know the the people rising up and and as as initially uh, kind of started this this kind of conflictual situation um, and kind of throwing yeah. Syria into into this kind of chaos. Indeed, there are so many groups: the Daesh, the Jabhat al-Nusra, the 
IS, the Islamic, so-called Islamic State. There's free so Syrian many army. groups, the Free Syrian Army. Um, and, but, and, and then the ramification of that with, with but, and it's not just Syria and Egypt either. I mean, the whole Middle East is in flames. The U.S. has been continually bombing Iraq since 1991. Uh, and with the refugees, they're not just coming from Syria. They're coming from Syria. They're coming from Iraq. They're coming from Iran. They're coming from Pakistan and Afghanistan, Morocco, Sri Lanka, uh, Senegal. They're coming from everywhere, so desperate. And, and, and the, the powers that be, in their infinite wisdom, are saying that places like Afghanistan and Pakistan are safe countries, so they're not really refugees. They're migrants which is patently absurd. Obama's been bombing Pakistan for eight and, years continuously. And if I, if I may say something here, some people think if a land was bombed for a year or two and then it's no longer being bombed, it's safe. Hmm. Big, big wrong. I'm sorry to say this. The bombing uses depleted uranium in order for the shells to have more uh, uh, piercing power. And to have to be more hot and inflamed or whatever, and this depleted uranium is radioactive, and it is something that gets in everything where the bombing takes place. So the soil, the water, everything is harmful for any living being. Then you look at these countries that where they have been subjected to the bombing, and look at the infants who are coming with incredible deformities, those who are dying, and think of yourself. Would you live in those circumstances? Before you condemn the refugees, just think for a moment. If I were in their shoes, and my house was destroyed, and my city is in ruins, and it's all just poisonous radioactive wasteland, should I continue to live under these circumstances? Would this be good for me and my children? If you think about this seriously, you would understand why people are sacrificing their lives in boats trying to save their children. Yeah, the depleted uranium use is actually, it's, it's a nuclear weapon. It's not an atomic bomb per se, but it is a nuclear weapon and it's being used with impunity. Well, we're using these horrible things. We're hearing for horrifying things piled on. We're seeing a situation where you had mentioned what, a couple of weeks ago that there are now 50,000 after the great joy and exultation of Tower Square, there are now 50,000 political prisoners in Egypt. Is that right? Yeah. This is happening through. So I want to ask you, uh, too, I want to ask you, Ahmed and uh, Sarah, is there any, what can, what can, what, what can we do we can talk about victims, victims, victims forever, and there are victims forever. But how can we build? What can we do, a voice, to build a community, to help bring the people together, to about the refugees, people from every from all the Middle Eastern countries and beyond coming in, from Africa, from the Middle East? What are the spots in which people can organize where we can find this Common Thread Collective radio show? So what I'd like to do right now is to ask how we can help, it, help encourage that common thread, how we can build a peace and love and understanding and intelligent and uh, intelligent response uh, response uh, a community how we can build community in the face of all this and build a revolution of the people from 